0: Tonight we continue our study in 1 John, the epistle of certainties as it has been often called and also as it has been called often the epistle of love because as we shall see very shortly as we continue through this epistle there is a tremendous emphasis by the apostle John called the apostle of love on this great quality that all of us should seek to emulate in terms of the Savior's love for us. We love him, John writes in the chapter, in the fourth chapter of this book, because he first loved us. And John writes a great deal in this epistle about love, but he also writes a great deal about certainty, about knowledge, and about knowing that we can know. And he also writes a great deal about sin and the importance of understanding and appreciating the seriousness of sin, the separation that sin brings between us and God because God cannot countenance sin. And keep in mind that as a part of our background of this epistle we noted that there was a group of uh, false teachers whom John had to encounter in his day called the Gnostics who contended that because the body and the spirit were completely separate. And because the spirit was not affected by what the body did, that once the spirit was sanctified, as they viewed it, then the body could engage in any kind of activity whatsoever and it would not affect adversely the spirit. And so John, and you'll see that especially in the section we look at tonight, is making it abundantly clear that that was a false notion. And we mentioned also that Indeed, there's nothing new under the sun, and that includes tragically false doctrine. And that the present-day popular doctrine of once saved, always saved is closely akin in many ways to some of the Gnostic heresy that John faced and confronted and answered in his day. Because there are those who claim today in the religious world that once the Spirit is sanctified, then there's no possibility of losing one's salvation, and that no matter how many sins or what nature of sin one might engage in, one cannot adversely affect his eternal salvation. Sounds very much like a portion, at least, of the Gnostic heresy, doesn't it? And yet John deals with it very effectively, and we see that in the first verse as we begin our study tonight in chapter 3 at verse 4, and study briefly through verse 9 where John here says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now one thing we need to appreciate here in this section of John's epistle is the use of the tenses here. When John writes, for example, in this verse, whoever commits sin, we've talked about the present active indicative tense, the tense that indicates continuous action, and that tense is very prevalent in this section of Scripture. And so when John here writes, whoever commits sin, he is not saying whoever commits a single sin commits lawlessness, although certainly the commission of a sin is lawlessness because it violates God's law, that's true. But what John is emphasizing here is that whoever keeps on committing sin, the one who keeps on living in sin, is continuously being lawless, is being opposed To the law of God. And keep in mind that there's a reason for his emphasis on this theme because of the error that he faced which said you can keep on doing anything you want to because what you do in the body is not going to affect your soul. And so John is emphasizing something to which we have already been introduced back in the last verse of chapter 2 where he wrote, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who what? who practices righteousness, is born, better would be begotten, of him. So John has already reminded us that it's the one who practices righteousness that is righteous before God. Not the one who claims that he's righteous before God while he continues to do whatever he wants to, as the Gnostics contended one could do. And then down at verse 3 of chapter 3, remember, he wrote, and everyone who has this hope, the hope of seeing Jesus as He is, as the first two verses of chapter 3 indicated. Everyone who has this hope of eternal life, in other words, in Him, does what? Here it is again. Purifies himself. That is, He keeps on. That's the tense. He keeps on purifying Himself. So at chapter 2, verse 29, it is the one who keeps on doing right, who is begotten of God. At verse 3 of chapter 3, it's the one who keeps on purifying himself, who is just, uh, just as he is pure. He is pure, just as he is pure. That's the standard of purity, that is Christ. Now he continues that theme where he says, whoever commits sin, that is, whoever keeps on living a sinful life is living a lawless life. In fact, if we read down through these verses that we're looking at tonight, by way of preview, and give, as we do, the indication by the tense of the verbs, you can see what John is emphasizing. Let's read it this way. Whoever keeps on committing sin also keeps on committing lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever keeps on abiding in him does not keep on sinning. Whoever keeps on sinning has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who keeps on sinning is of the devil. I know the verse says he who sins is of the devil. But John is not saying he who commits a sin is of the devil. Do you commit a sin as a Christian ever? Are you of the devil if you do? No. You are not of the devil when you fall short and when you, because you're human, commit a sin. That's not what John is writing about here. When he says, he who sins is of the devil, he uses that present active indicative tense that means, he who keeps on sinning shows that he is of the devil. And as I've read these verses and emphasized that continual action, that's the meaning of every single one of these expressions. He who keeps on sinning, verse 8, in other words, we would say, is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now let me read verse 9, first of all, the way it is in the text in the New King James. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now tell me that what John is saying is that whoever's been born, or I prefer begotten here, the word is the same in the original for born and begotten, but God is under consideration here, and God is the Father. It's the Father who begets, it's the mother who gives birth. And so he's talking about the Father, so we're begotten of God. That's where the seed is in the Father with the word that he has delivered. Whoever has been begotten of God does not what? Sin? Ever? No. No. It's the same idea as these other verses we have been reading. Whoever has been born of God does not keep on sinning. For his seed remains in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been begotten of God. Now that in summary is exactly what John is emphasizing in these verses we're looking at tonight. You cannot become a Christian and keep on living A life of sin. That is totally inconsistent with what you claim to be. Christ came to take away sin. If you claim that Christ has taken away your sin and yet you continue to live a sinful life, you are in effect saying that Christ died for nothing. He died to take away sin. He didn't die to allow a person to continue to live in sin. And that's what John is confronting here. He's confronting that. But as he does, he confronts something that we confront today. We confront it in the doctrine of the impossibility of apostasy. Yes, we do. But we also confront it at times among those who claim that they can give lip service to God the Father and to Christ the Son, and it matters little or nothing as to how they live their lives as long as they claim to have God in their life and claim to have Jesus in their life. And if they go through the motions of ritualistic worship practices, what they do in between those times doesn't really affect them that much. Do you know anyone who lives that way? Have you ever known anyone in the Lord's church who lived that way? That is basically who might attend fairly regularly, but whose life did not in any way harmonize in between those times with what that person professed as he or she showed up for worship. What John is addressing here is that kind of problem. In other words, you cannot live an inconsistent life claiming to follow God in Christ while your life itself says something totally different. That is not to say that you need to live in dread and terror Every time you think you may have tripped up or committed a sin because you are suddenly of the devil because you've committed that sin. That is not what John is writing. Remember what he wrote in 1 John 1, 7 through 9? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ. What? keeps on cleansing us. That's the idea there of cleansing. Same idea as this tense we're talking about here. The blood keeps on cleansing as we keep on walking. And yes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Now tell me how that what John wrote in 1 John one eight could be consistent with what he wrote here in 1 John 3, 9 if what he is saying here in 1 John 3, 9 is that whoever has been born of God does not commit a single sin. In First John, John 1 and verse 8 he said... If you say that you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. So it obviously is the case that what he is writing here in 1 John 3, 9 is whoever is born of God does not keep on committing sins. That is, just lives a life of sin and has no regard for doing what is right. Remember? Remember what he wrote in 1 John 2, 29? If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who what? Practices righteousness is born of him. And so that is the emphasis here. And incidentally, in this verse we're looking at now, 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Whoever keeps on committing sin, lives a sinful life, is leading a lawless life. That's the context we've already established. And sin is lawlessness. You know, there are those today who would try to tell us that really law is something that is outdated and antiquated and that we need to be concerned very little, if at all, about law. We need to be more concerned about love. The apostle of love, who wrote the epistle of love, as it is sometimes called, as we said, as well as the epistle of certainties, tells us that law is involved in our existence and that we need to be concerned about law because when we sin, we violate law. To live in sin is to live a lawless life. How can you be lawless if there is no law? That's an impossibility. Can you be a lawbreaker if there's no law to break? How can you be characterized as a lawbreaker if there's no law in existence for you to break? You couldn't possibly be a lawbreaker. There are those who claim they really can't be sinners because there's really no specific law to which we are accountable and amenable. John denies that, By the very statement we're looking at here in 1 John 3, 4, doesn't it? Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. In other words, he breaks the law of God. He transgresses God's law. To sin literally is to miss the mark or to go beyond the line. And that's what John tells us here. And then in 1 John 3, 5 he says... And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. So what he said in verse 4 is, Whoever keeps on committing sin keeps on being lawless, because sin is lawlessness. And do you not realize, verse 5, that he was manifested, Christ that is, that he was revealed, that he came to this earth to do what? To allow us to keep on committing sins? No, John is saying just the opposite. How can you keep on committing sin when the very one who died on Calvary died in order to take away our sins? And in him there was and is no sin whatsoever. And so what should be our attitude as those who seek to follow Christ and claim to follow Christ? Should we treat sin lightly? Should we say it doesn't really matter how much we sin, that's what some in John, uh, John's day were saying. John's saying you can't have that attitude and claim to be a follower of Christ. He goes on, verse 6, whoever abides in Him, and there's that same present tense, whoever keeps on abiding in Him, the one who is settled in Him is the idea, the one has ta- who has taken up His abode in Christ, does not what? Ever commit a sin? That's not what he's saying here, remember? Whoever keeps on abiding in him does not what? Keep on sinning. In other words, he doesn't continue to live that sinful lifestyle. And whoever does, whoever does keep on living that life of sin making no real effort to avoid any sin at all as we should make the effort to avoid sin, whoever has that attitude has neither seen him nor known him. You haven't perceived him spiritually, you have not known him, if that is your claim. Because those who've truly seen what they need to see spiritually... Those who have come to know God and Christ have come to this conclusion. I don't want to commit a single sin. Oh, yes, I know I do. I know despite my best efforts, I fall short. But thanks be to God, the blood keeps on cleansing as I keep on doing my best. And I regularly confess my sins to the throne of heaven through my mediator, Jesus Christ. But my attitude is, I want to be as sinless as he was. That's my goal. I can't be, but that's my goal. That's a far cry from the goal of the Gnostics, isn't it? The goal that John addresses here, which says, Eat, drink, and be merry. You've been sanctified. What your body does and what you take into your body and what you do with your body can in no way adversely affect your immortal soul. Nice work if you can get it, isn't it? But John says you cannot have that. And if you are truly a follower of Christ, you cannot have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. You cannot live a life of worldly pleasure and indulgence and at the same time claim to be a follower of Christ. That doesn't mean that you can be as sinless as Christ was. Doesn't mean that when you fall short that you are characterized suddenly as being of the devil. No, no, no. But it does mean that your attitude is such that you're so thankful to the Christ who came and took away your sins that you don't want to commit another one if you could keep from it. And you'll do everything you can to keep from it. And out of love and gratitude for the one who came and took away your sins, you will live a life of devotion and dedication to him with thanksgiving in your heart for the fact that even though you fall short, his blood, the blood of Christ, keeps on cleansing as you keep on walking, and therefore you are comforted and you are assured and you have hope and you have confidence because of that relationship. Little children, he writes, let no one deceive you. Don't let anyone tell you any differently than what John is telling you here and what we're relating from John here. Don't let someone tell you that practicing righteousness is not necessary. You don't have to practice it, just proclaim it. (laughs) Just proclaim righteousness, but you don't have to practice righteousness. Don't let anyone deceive you. That would in effect be a modern day message to the impossibility of apostasy advocate that says you are a false teacher when you espouse that doctrine. And John would say to all those who might be taken in by that, do not let anyone deceive you in that regard. Here's the truth of it. He who practices righteousness is righteous. And who is the standard? Just as he, the Christ, is righteous. remember what Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 2? Verse 21, For to this you were called, Because Christ also suffered for us, Leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. He goes on, Who committed no sin, or was deceit found in His mouth, Who when He was reviled did not revile in return, When He suffered He did not threaten, But committed Himself to Him who judges righteously, Who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for what? Righteousness. Isn't Peter saying the very same thing John is right here? We died to sins. We died, died to the desire to sin. We died to the habitual practice of sin. We died to that life of sin. That's what John is saying here. And we have lived now, begun to live for what? Righteousness. Just proclaiming it? No, no practicing it, John says. And Peter was writing the same thing. And he goes on, by whose stripes you were healed. We live for righteousness because his stripes brought about our healing, took away our sins, and gave us the opportunity to live righteous lives. Perfect, sinless lives? No. But righteous lives. In emulation of He who is per, him who is perfect in righteousness. And then in verse 8, here it is again. He who sins commits a single sin. No, remember, remember the whole theme. He who keeps on sinning is of the devil. Not the child of God who's walking in the light and confessing his sins and doing his best. There's no way to characterize that individual as being of the devil. He is of God. He's of God. The one who is of the devil is he who keeps on living the life of sin, contending that he can do so even while he claims to be a follower of God and Christ. That's the one who is of the devil who keeps on living a life of sin. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. He was the first sinner. He was the beginning of sin. He's known nothing but sin. Since sin entered the picture. And for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might what? Destroy the works of the devil. Does that mean that he took the devil out of existence? No. He destroyed the works of the devil. Does that mean the devil doesn't have anything he can tempt you with today? No, he's got a lot, doesn't he? But how then did Jesus destroy the works of the devil? He overpowered him. He overpowered him. He led him captive. And through Jesus Christ, and through our faith in Christ, our obedient faith in Christ, we can overcome the devil because he has overcome the devil, and we through him may also overcome. How did he do it? The Hebrews writer tells us how he did it in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and verse 15 where he writes, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, there we are, he himself, there's Christ, likewise shared in the same, that is flesh and blood, that through death, his death on the cross, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There we are now if we're Christians tonight. What Jesus did in destroying the power of Satan and giving us a power through Christ that can overcome the power of Satan, he has released us from the fear of death. We don't have to fear death anymore because Christ has overcome the one who brought death into the world, the one who brought sin into the world, Satan. And we through him through Christ, can overcome and be victorious. And in our final verse tonight, John writes, as we previewed earlier, whoever has been born or begotten of God does not keep on sinning, is the thrust of the statement, does not keep on living that life of sin, for his seed remains in him. What is that seed? By the way, what is the seed that is in us? John writes of that seed here in verse 9, but I believe he also writes of what could be called the seed in verse 10, though the word seed is not there. Verse 10 of chapter 1, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Luke eight eleven. the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. What is it that is in us that enables us to overcome the power that is outside of us? It's the word, the word of God. Again, we go back to Peter's writing along this line. And what does Peter write in 1 Peter 1, 18, beginning? who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now listen to verse 22 beginning of First Peter 1. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, listen to it, having been born again or begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God which lives and abides forever. What does Peter call the word? The seed. What does John call the seed? The word. The terms are used interchangeably. And the seed that must remain in us is that all-sufficient, all-powerful word of God. And if it does remain in us and bears fruit in us, as it should and as it will as we apply ourselves to its study and application then we cannot sin one time no we cannot keep on living in sin how can one who has the Word of God living in him continue to live a life of sin that's so inconsistent and contradictory that John says it's an impossibility you cannot claim to be a follower of Christ And keep on living a sinful life. You've been begotten of God. Born of water in the spirit. Born of waters of baptism. If you're a Christian tonight. By the teaching of the spirit. Begotten by God. The seed is his word. And with that word. In us. Bearing fruit in us. And being lived out in our lives. We have everything we need. To overcome Satan. In summary, what we've studied here tonight is a passage that tells us first John three, four through nine, all about sin. You want to know all about sin? That's really what we've studied here tonight. First, what is it? Verse four says it's lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. What does sin do? It transgresses God's law. Again, same verse, verse 4. Why does sin occur? Verse 6 tells us our failure to abide in Christ. Where does sin originate? Verse 8 tells us with the devil who sinned from the beginning. Who enables us to conquer sin? Same verse, verse 8. Jesus How is this accomplished? Verse 9. The seed remains in us. The seed is the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And in 1 John 5, a verse we'll look at a little bit later, at verse 4, John writes, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory. That overcomes the world. Our faith. Our faith overcomes the world. But faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. His seed remains in us. John really has told us all about sin. In 1 John 3. Verses 4 through 9. And the most important thing he has told us really. Is that we can overcome it. Through Jesus Christ. And only through Christ, and only by coming to God through Christ, by a belief in Christ that leads us to repent of our sins, to confess Jesus as the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of those sins. If you haven't done that, we plead with you to do that tonight, and if you have but need to come home as one precious soul did this very morning, we plead with you to come home to your first love in repentance and confession of sin that needs to be confessed in that public way, that we may pray with you and for you to the God who loves you. As we stand to sing, will you come?